Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. Hope you are having a great day. And my special shout out to Yoshiko, Yoshiko, Yoshiko Dart. Such a great disability leader she is. Love her so much. So special shout out to you, Yoshiko. And, oh, here we go. Here we go. Ireland. I don't know what it is. We have 17, hear me, 17 countries that listen to this show. And... Some, there's only like one person. That's it. But I appreciate that one person. But Ireland, of all of the countries, always has the most listeners. I love you, Ireland. Listen, every country, I appreciate you listening. And please spread the news. Tell other people because disability counts no matter where you are i think china is one of the listeners i just want to mention i am speaking next week at the u.s state department to a delegation from china so i'm so happy to do that and so happy to have you as one of the countries that listen to the show and thank you hi mark hi mark hi mark is our lead sponsor and they have been for the past three years. So I so appreciate everything you do because you know what? This show is about quality of life and education for all of us living with disabilities. Not a group of sick people, not a medical model, but a disability community. And you know how much I believe in fairness for people with disabilities, and that is why I am the CEO and founder of Bender Consulting Services, and I'm on a mission to find employment for people with disabilities. You know, if you know of anyone seeking employment, anyone with a disability, you make sure you send them to our webpage at BenderConsult.com. And now today, oh, we have... And let me tell you what, my close friend, Madonna Long, she loves this person because she told me about him so many times and what a great leader he is. And so welcome to the show, Eric Jimenez, who is the Senior Policy Director in Nevada Treasurer's Office. Eric, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. And Eric, for our listeners, um, maybe you can start by telling everyone how you became involved and why you were involved in fighting the fight for the disability community. Well, absolutely. And I've, I've been a tireless disability advocate for my entire life. By way of background, um, I was born three months premature with a birth weight of about one pound in Las Vegas, Nevada, and um, have a mild form of cerebral palsy. And I've, since, you know, being born and going through struggles, I've used that um, as not as an opportunity to seek out services or to have a crutch, but really to help people who otherwise wouldn't have a voice. Um, and I think, you know, that's why I, I got involved in government and politics, because I think we have an opportunity 
to give a voice to the people with, that don't have one and to help really improve conditions so they can, you know, live their life to the fullest. Well, we need more people that do that, Eric, because I just want to say, if you're listening to the show right now, you know, if you are a person living with a disability, every vote counts, every voice counts. Why I'm saying that is you, too, can be an advocate. If you just help one person, one single person, and if you are in public service, you know, we all need your help, and you'll be hearing more about that uh, later on. So here you are, Eric. Uh, You are working in the government. Why did you want to be in politics, or I should say in the public service? Well, I think, one, uh, because I'm a crazy person and I don't know what else I'm good at, uh, but when I started, I was 16 years old, um, and I was oftentimes the only person with a disability in the room, and, um, you know, I, I started asking questions and saying, like, you know, wh- why, don't, why doesn't our public school system help kids who need a little bit more help, or why, doesn't the government, why isn't the government there when they need to be? And eventually I got tired of just asking those questions and not getting the answers that I wanted, um, so I decided to take an internship at 16 with a former United States senator um, who, on the very next day, got embroiled in an affair scandal and had to resign. But I think learning from that and learning like the heat of politics and how you can really make a difference uh, was important to me. I did some legislative advocacy work after college and um, really kind of represented a myriad of clients from the business community to casinos, hospitals, and a lot of disability nonprofit groups. And I saw the gaps in our system. And particularly in the state of Nevada, we have um, a tax base that's just it's severely underfunded. So we don't have the ability to provide Medicaid rates that we need to. We don't have the ability to provide public schools with the amount of support that they need, particularly for people with disabilities. So I did some advocacy work for a while. I'm pretty active in the Democratic Party here in Nevada. Um, decided to leave my corporate job and, you know, leave everything behind and run campaigns for a while. I helped my friend um, Zach Conine, who's Nevada State Treasurer, and we got a little lucky and we won by half a percent. But now I'm in the executive branch here in Carson City. I believe I'm one of the only people in our executive branch with a disability. And I think it's, it's tremendously rewarding, right, because when you have someone with a disability in the room, um, you can inform whether it's the governor or the secretary of state, like how, what are we doing to increase voting rights and ensure that people have access and can make sure their vote matters? What are we doing to make sure that we're funding programs that we need to? And I think unless you get involved, and if you, whether you're a parent or an advocate or whatever, if, if you're not in the room, you know, there's no one speaking up for that community when decisions are made. Well, thank goodness that you did that. And thank goodness that you're a crazy person because (laughs) look what you ended up doing. You ended up working to make a difference. And I always tell people you can talk about it, uh, but so many people sit on the sidelines. So I'm really glad to see you doing what you are doing for this country. So now we know there are people listening that – don't know exactly what you are doing. So before we go any further, how about if you explain to everyone what you do? Yeah, so I am the Senior Policy Director for the Nevada State Treasurer, 
And as we talk to people all over the state and all over the country, um, the biggest question we, we get from folks is, I have no idea what that means or what that does. Quite simply, um, the Treasurer's Office is involved in creating opportunities for pe- the people in Nevada who are in the Constitution, and we handle all the investments for the state. But also, we handle a very, very uh, pro- specific program that's near and dear to my heart. We are the administrator of the ABLE program, and I would argue that the Nevada ABLE Savings Program and ABLE accounts in general are probably the single greatest piece of legislation that happened after the Americans with Disabilities Act. And what those programs are is that if you have a qualifying disability that happened before the age of 26, you can save up to $15,000 or $27,000 if you're working without losing your means-tested benefits, so your SSI or your Medicaid. Uh, And this is incredibly important when we talk about you know, how do we ensure that people with disabilities can get active in community, like integrated community employment without losing benefits? Because we want them to earn higher wages, but we don't want them to lose their Medicaid. And the ABLE program is, I would argue, one of the greatest programs to help people get on their feet and get out of a bad situation. So we do that in the Treasurer's Office, and we also do all of the college savings programs, so ensuring that, you know, every kid in Nevada, not just the ones who look or act a certain way, um, have the opportunity to go to college and save for college. And I think that's incredibly important as we're trying to reach underserved populations. So that's what I do in a nutshell. Uh, but mainly I just uh, I, I speak as loudly as I can advocating for people with disabilities. And I think being in the executive branch of government, we have a platform that a lot of other people don't have. The treasurer. How committed is the treasurer to the disability uh, community? I think um, before we started on this path together, Treasurer Conan and I, um, he was committed to, you know, ensuring that all people have the greatest experience possible. But with me uh, yelling in his ear every single day, I think he's really ready to lead on these issues. We just passed a bill that was signed by the governor that fully moves the ABLE Savings Program in our office. Um, We are specifically designing outreach programs to people all across Nevada, whether you're in West Windover, which is a town of about 4,000 people to Las Vegas, which is a couple million. How can we reach these communities and parents and schools? So I would say he's probably one of the most committed treasurers in the country to people with disabilities. Oh, that is wonderful. That is really wonderful. You were talking about the ABLE Act. Of course, I'm very familiar with this because of our senator, uh, Bob Casey, right here in Pennsylvania. Have you seen that transforming lives already? Oh, absolutely. I think one of the big problems we have is awareness. But once we tell people about this program and tell them it only takes five minutes to sign up, um, the stories that we hear, particularly from folks in the Down syndrome community, um, it's just life-changing. We have an intern in our office. um, His name is Jack. He just happens to have Down syndrome, and he owns his own small business, a popcorn company, uh, jackspopcorncompany.com, in case you want to buy some. Uh, But... Prior to him setting up an ABLE account, his parents were only keeping money in the business because they were so afraid of him losing his access to Medicaid um, and Social Security. And ever since setting up that program, he's been able to thrive. I think he sold something like $40,000 worth of popcorn a couple weekends ago, and now he's been able to save for the future, which he wouldn't have been able to do prior to the ABLE Act. So I think it's an incredible opportunity. It's great to see that Congress is... Uh, has introduced the ABLE Act expansion, which would include disabilities that have gone after 26, so that's an additional 6.1 million people, 
which I think is an incredible step forward to how we like encourage people with disabilities to save and better themselves. And you know, Eric, um, I just realized as we're talking about this, you know, we have a lot of listeners internationally. Do you think you could just take a couple minutes and explain to them the ABLE Act? Yeah, the, the ABLE Act was a very simple piece of legislation that was promulgated by the National Down Syndrome Society primarily and a number of disability advocates that tried to get around the problem of we have an income cap or a savings cap that people with disabilities who are receiving federal programs um, that I would imagine they have in places like Ireland and England through the National Health Service and things like that, where they're for health care and for retirement benefits. And if you earned more than, I believe, $2,000 a year, you are ineligible for those benefits. So everybody, $2,000 doesn't go a long way. Uh, that might be a couple hours a week um, if you're working a minimum wage job or a sub-minimum wage job. And if you lose those benefits, there's really no incentive for you to get working. So what the ABLE Act did is it created a tax-advantageous savings account um, that didn't hit those income caps if you saved. So you could put, a family could put in money, or the person with the disability themselves can put in money. They could put up to $15,000 a year, uh, which is significantly higher than they would have been able to put uh, to save or earn under the previous caps. And then if they're working, they can also deposit an additional 12000 so $27,000 a year, which gets them pretty much close to a minimum wage job um, here in Nevada, at least. So they could save that money uh, and spend it on a, a variety of expenses. The categories that you could spend the money on are extremely broad um, in terms of what you would need to live your life with a disability. So it could be for transportation, it could be for healthcare, it could be for clothes, it could be for education, um, daily living expenses. The goal of the ABLE Act was to make the program as flexible and as easy as possible. And the way it works, we have uh, in Nevada and many other states across America, actually, you can get a debit card with a basic checking account so you could use the ABLE account just like any other person would use a checking account or a savings account. It is so awesome, isn't it? Oh, mm-hmm. that is so great, so great. Well, listen, right now we're going to go to break, but if you just joined us, we're talking to Eric Jimenez, the Senior Policy Director from Nevada's Treasurer's Office. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Since 1985... Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. Bender assists customers with achieving their diversity and workforce inclusion initiatives by tapping into a talent pool of individuals seeking professional positions, including those in the STEM fields. In addition, Bender services include disability employment consulting, training and technology accessibility through their high-test line of service. For more information, please visit www.benderconsult.com. 
Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Disability Matters. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Now please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joyce Bender. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're talking to Eric Jimenez, Senior Policy Director, Nevada Treasurer's Office, and a national disability rights leader. We need more young people who are leaders, and he is one. And you know what we're going to talk about now? We're going to talk about one of my hot, hot topics, because it gets me fired up all the time, and that would be sub-minimum pay. It's hard for me to envision that in the United States, we still have places with sub-minimum pay. I mean, think about that. People with disabilities being paid less than someone without a disability. Really, that's like slavery. And, you know, I did testify uh, in Senate at a meeting with Senator Harkin about sub-minimum pay. And I know, Eric, that I think you've been doing some work in Nevada, uh, so let's talk about that. First, your view. What do you think about sub-minimum pay? Well, I think it, it, it's a very simple issue, even though the folks that are using it are trying to complicate the issue, of whether or not a person with a disability is an equal and you know the same value as another citizen or they're not. And I would argue that they are, and at, at that point we have a responsibility not just as a disability issue, but as a civil rights and a human rights issue to ensure that everyone can earn the same level of pay for an hour of work. And to say that just because someone has a disability that they can only earn, and when we talk about sub-minimum wage, um, that it's not like they're earning $7 an hour or $6 an hour. They're earning $0.27 cents an hour. And I don't know about you, Joyce, but that sounds an awful lot like slavery to me, and I think we need to do something about it. Oh, it does sound like slavery. Um, I believe that it is. What have you done? Have you done anything in Nevada about this? Well, yes. So we've been working really, really hard over the past couple of years. Um, when I was working in the Nevada legislature a couple of years ago, um, I, I went to one of the assemblymen who's the chair of our Democratic Party, and he's a representative from the Service Employees International Union as well. And we, we started having this conversation where we were talking about raising the state's minimum wage and why weren't we actually, you know, doing anything about the sub-minimum wage for, for this population of folks? I believe it's 1,100 people here in Nevada are currently being paid below the minimum wage. And so what we did is we went on a listening tour over the, the last two years, and we started talking to people. And, you know, whether we talked with labor unions or um, some of the providers who want to do the right thing and, you know, just don't have the resources to do it, or parents and families, most of the folks we talked to were just completely shocked. So what we did, um, I live in the city of Reno, uh, Reno, Nevada. You may remember it from the show Reno 911, which is not the, the best portrait of the city. But we, we started a resolution there, and we got to prohibit the use of sub-minimum wage on all city contracts. And we 
stirred up, we ruffled some feathers and made some waves. And since then, we've had multiple jurisdictions reach out to us as well to pass a similar resolution so that if you are performing work on a public contract, um, a city contract for that matter, you can't be paid below the minimum wage. And I think that was the first step um, in what we were trying to do. And when I started this journey... I didn't think it was going to be as controversial as I found out it would be. We have one of the largest disability providers here um, based in Southern Nevada in Las Vegas, and uh, they are the biggest user of subminimum wage, and they refuse to change. So we brought a piece of legislation this session, um, which was immediately met with significant opposition. I think they hired 10 or 15 lobbyists uh, to oppose it. And unfortunately, that bill didn't make it through. But what, what we're trying to do here in Nevada is to at first, set a mandatory floor so that you could be paid no, le- no less than a certain dollar amount. Maybe that's 425 like they did in the state of Maryland. Maybe it's a little higher. Our minimum wage in Nevada is going to be increased to $12 an hour gradually. So we think somewhere around 4 to $6, I think, is a good place to start. Two, I think we need to figure out how we phase it out. In working with the Federation for the Blind and the National Council on Disability, there seems to be an agreement that there should be about a six-year phase-out of subminimum wage to make sure that you're not putting anybody on the street or putting someone out of a job if they enjoy working where they're already working. And then our, our bill went a little further, and one of the biggest areas I see where people with disabilities are disenfranchised is that they don't have the same collective bargaining rights or the right to join a labor union that um, people without a disability do. So we, we included a provision for collective bargaining rights, and we've been getting a lot of support since the bill didn't make it through, but we've been getting a lot of support with the um, AFL-CIO and all of our labor partners to find ways to make sure that these workers can collectively bargain. So we're going to spend the next two years uh, keeping, we're going to keep chipping away at it and making sure that communities know that if you're not paid the minimum wage, um, you probably should be. And I, I think it's probably one of the biggest civil rights issues of our time. Naturally, all of this can be fixed if we just pass the Raise the Wage Act in Congress, um, which raises the minimum wage in general, but also eliminates subminimum wage. But I think here in Nevada, we are on the right path for no one talking about subminimum wage two years ago to us having legislation and resolutions from local governments. I think, you know, it's just a matter of time until we get it done. Right. And uh, I'm so proud of you. I know you wrote an op-ed about this. And one question that I wanted to ask you, you know, when people, as you said, you didn't know it was going to be this controversial, but when people got upset, what was their main basis? What, what was their main justification for subminimum pay? They, I think there's their main justification that they said and what they actually meant. So they said that these people could not find other jobs within the community and that no one would hire them and they would be left on the street. I don't believe that's accurate based on the three states that have banned subminimum wage. We haven't seen any of that happening. What I really think it was is that the largest organization um, of disability service provision here in Nevada earned $44 million last year, and this was a, a huge... Um, threat to their, their profitability. So I think it's something to be, to be thought of, but obviously if we phase out subminimum wage, we want to ensure that nobody ends up on the street and everyone has the opportunity to, to work where they want to work or work for how much they want to work. But to say that someone isn't good enough for the minimum wage is to say that they're just not good enough as a human being, and I just don't think that's right. 
So, you know, I, I wasn't convinced by their arguments. We've been gathering a coalition of support that wasn't convinced as well. But I think when organizations that are supposed to be nonprofits start hiring, you know, dozens of lobbyists, I think things become a little more complicated. You know what? My, I agree with you 100%. I, I've had people say to me about people uh, that, you know, have some minimum pay that, well, what would happen? This is what they want to do. And I would say, really? Well, do they know there's something else they could do? You know, if this is all they've told, been told, they can do. But okay, fine. Pay them, uh, pay them minimum wage then. Pay them what you bid. That's not going to happen. They don't want to do that. Um, you know, I know that it's being phased out, but I hope that happens on a national basis soon, because it's just so wrong. It's wrong. And, and then what really bothers me is like that entity that you said brought in $44 million when I know that in many of these fights of why we need this, it's for monetary reasons. So good good for you, Eric. I'm proud of you. You keep fighting that fight. But right now it is time for our news break, uh, which, as you know, on the half hour, Every week, we have a news break with Advocacy Matters to give you an update on what is going on uh, in the world as it relates to us in the United States. And we have my favorite, Perry Jude Radisic, the CEO of Pennsylvania Disability Rights with us. How are you today, Perry? Hey, Joyce, I'm fine. I I hope uh, everyone's well uh, back in Pittsburgh. We are. Uh, so this is a perfect timing uh, to talk about a hearing that happened today uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. It was the Committee on Education and Labor. And today, uh, Joyce, they held a hearing to talk about eliminating barriers to employment. And, of course, one of the topics was about transitioning from sheltered workshop settings to competitive integrated employment. Wow, how timely, huh? Very timely, including maybe they did it because of your show today. It's amazing. Okay, well, go ahead. What happened? So Achieva was there uh, to testify. Uh, Achieva is, of course, one of our large service providers in Pennsylvania and uh, out of Pittsburgh. And Achieva was there to testify about their best practices in transitioning from sheltered workshop settings to competitive integrated employment. So today's hearing included employment issues related to youth, seniors, and people with disabilities. And the committee addressed two bills related to the disability community uh, on the transformation uh, of service providers from sheltered workshops to competitive integrated settings. Uh, Those bills were H.R. 873 and S260. Those bills are called the Transformation to Competitive Employment Act. And they would expand opportunities for, for competitive integrated employment for people with disabilities, at the same time phasing out the sub-minimum wage certificates under 14C of the Fair Labor Standards Act, and that phase-out would, would extend over a six-year period. 
Now, those bills were introduced by the Education and Labor Chairman, Bobby Scott, and our own Senator Bob Casey here in Pennsylvania. So those bills do a couple of things. Uh, all of this information, by the way, is, is on our website at www.disabilityrightspa.org. There are links to the hearing. There are links to these pieces of legislation. There is a link to a fact sheet about the legislation. And we include a link to an action. Because at Advocacy Matters, we always believe that we need to work together and help people with disabilities have the opportunity to earn a minimum wage and have competitive integrated employment. So you can help by going to disabilityrightsba.org, learn more about the hearing, learn more about these bills that will help transition employers to competitive integrated employment and phase out the sub-minimum wage, which is what Disability Matters is talking about today, and take action. So go to disabilityrightspa.org, click on Advocacy Matters, learn about the hearing, learn about this legislation, and write to your members of Congress today to support this legislation. Wow, how timely. Uh, Eric, do you have any question or comment? No, I just think that's fantastic news. It's great that we, we're moving towards a federal solution. Yes, it is. Um, and Perry, website one more time. Of course. It's www.disabilityrightspa.org, and we have all of the information about the hearing today, and uh, please go visit our website and get engaged. Disability Rights PA. Let me just tell you, I'm very honored to serve on the board uh, with Perry, but you know, even if you're a not-for-profit, you need money to operate. So when you are thinking about making a donation and there is never too small of amount, please go today and consider making a donation because these are the people fighting the fight for all of us living with disabilities. Perry, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks, Eric, and thanks, Joyce, for your time today. All righty. I started doing this a while back uh, uh, Eric, because I want people to know what's going on in the news, and I've found a lot of times they do not. So I have Perry on every week on the half hour to give this update, and she just does a phenomenal job. Okay, Eric, back to you now. Um, you've worked on many things, I see, when I read about you. But what, what is some of the other legislation that you've worked on that impact people with disabilities? Well, we've done a ton of work here in Nevada. Um, two years ago, we passed, uh, working with the Department of Edu- Education, they really did all the legwork on this. We just helped. Um, it was Assembly Bill 64 here in Nevada. What we found was happening in our school system is when they were in high school, students with disabilities were purposely being counseled out of a traditional track for graduation. So what they would get instead was they would, the counselor would say, hey, you, you know, you're just not going to meet the requirements of graduation. How about you get this certificate of attendance instead? 
Um, so they went to high school for four years, and then they basically just got a piece of paper. But they were prohibited with that piece of paper from joining a trade union, joining the military, doing any sort of higher education, um, you know, furthering their education careers, and getting a lot of jobs um, in this new economy that we're seeing. And it was tremendously disheartening because these people were kind of stuck. It was like they were on a pathway to nowhere. Um, they went to high school, you know, they did the best they could, and they couldn't have any opportunities after, after high school, which often left them in a position where they, they would either stay at home or they'd be in a sheltered workshop earning sub-minimum wage. So what we did, we worked with the Department of Education to create an alternate pathway to a high school graduation. So those students um, who might just need a little bit more help or who just born a little bit differently could still earn an alternate diploma so they could do things after high school. And it was, it was tremendously successful, and we were able to make it retroactive. So thousands of kids are, and adults at this point who were told that their lives didn't matter and that they weren't good enough were suddenly able to have the high school equivalency and were able to you know, really get their lives moving forward in the right place. So that's one that we're really, really proud of from a couple years ago. Um, another one from this legislative session, our legislature is about to wrap up in the next two weeks here in Nevada, uh, but Governor Sislak here in Nevada just signed Assembly Bill 91, uh, which I've been working on for about a year. We found out that people with disabilities in Nevada under the care of a guardian were being forcibly sterilized um, by their guardians, like through, through a doctor and things like that. And they, they had new, no due process rights under the law. So what we did in Assembly Bill 91 is we said, okay, uh, first of all, this should never be happening to someone with a disability, but let's look at the statute. It was a very old statute, probably almost 100 years old, saying that people with disabilities could be experimented on or sterilized, um, and they had no due process rights. So what we did is we said, hey, you'll have to have the right to counsel, the right to a guardian ad litem, the right to an attorney, um, and have an evidentiary hearing before any sterilization takes place. And then what we also did is said that, you know, because reproductive freedoms and reproductive rights is, some, is a big kind of topic in the disability community right now, um, how about we consider lesser extreme forms of birth control um, so people with disabilities could still, you know, live their life and have the same reproductive freedoms as everyone else, um, but wouldn't have to escalate to the level of sterilization. So it's a very quirky, kind of weird bill, but we're really happy about that, about that bill. And then, obviously, we've been working diligently on every um, effort that we can to increase competitive employment and to raise wages for these folks as well. So, overall, we're moving in the right direction here in Nevada. I think it's good that, like I said before at the beginning of the interview, it's helpful to have someone in the room. Uh, that's why we need more people with disabilities to run for office. Um, I know it's scary, but I think to the extent if you have something to say, you should say it, and I think a lot of people will agree with you when you start talking about this community. So to the extent that we can have more people with disabilities running for office, I think that's a good thing. All right, wait, I have a question. So did that yeah. bill pass? That bill passed, AB 91, the sterilization bill. Yeah. It passed and was signed by the governor about two weeks ago. So they can no longer do that? Correct. Oh, you know what? When you're telling this, I am sure there are listeners as shocked as me. I cannot believe there is a state they were still doing this. When I do my presentations at companies that want to hire people with disabilities, I am always talking about stigma. So to get in their mind of people in business how pervasive this has been 
throughout the centuries, I tell the story of during the time that there was forced sterilization in the United States. I always use that uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, you know, uh, three three families of uh, imbeciles are enough when he voted yes about sterilization. And, you know, and everyone will sit in there and hear me talk, what? What? There was a time that people could be sterilized if they had a disability. I am absolutely shocked that that was still going on. No, and we had live cases in northern Nevada and in southern Nevada. I was told a story that happened, it was probably about 10 years ago, of a young man with autism, who's on the autism spectrum, who was forcibly sterilized um, because his guardians, I believe they were his parents, but I'm not sure, uh, didn't want him to spread his disease, as if autism is something that could be spread genetically or anything like that. So it was incredibly disheartening and moving when we heard that testimony over the last year. But we did something about it, and I think we're in a good place, not only to prevent this from happening in the future, but to have a robust conversation on reproductive freedoms and reproductive rights, as you know, the Supreme Court's striking that down every single day. But I think for this population of folks, we have to remember that people with disabilities engage in sex, too, and it's not bad to talk about it. We just need to make sure that they have all the tools they need to make sure they're doing it safely. Uh, now, when that would happen, like, who, who made that decision? The guardian? The parents? Whomever it well, was? Well, it would be a court. So right now, before we passed the bill, there was no procedure um, or like of, of an evidentiary hearing. So a guardian could petition a judge, and the judge could grant it, and the doctor could do it. So, one, we had a problem with guardians were just going to doctors directly and not using the court. That's one problem. And two, we had systems where oftentimes, and we don't even know how many times it happened, that the guardian would petition the court, and it met the standard under the law, so the court would grant it. So this well, what what, that How law. did you find out about this? There was a live case um, through our legal aid services in Washoe County, Nevada, where Reno is. So we found out about that. Um, one of the disability advocacy law centers called me, um, and we did something about it. Eventually, that case was settled out of court. The person wasn't sterilized, but if we didn't do something about it, this could have happened to someone in the future, and that really just breaks my heart. Oh, my God. I mean, do you understand Listeners, I give the example because at that time in the United States, three generations of imbeciles are enough. Uh, this was uh, with Carrie Buck when it went to the Supreme Court that uh, her family wanted to have her sterilized. And you know what? It was the exact same reason that at that time there were people that believed that if you had a disability – um, that, you know, it could be autism, but it could be anything, that they did not want to spread this. And, again, when I tell that story, because, by the way, the documents on all that went to Germany to Hitler. Of course, he took it to a horrible level, but but that did happen. So, when I, as I said, when I tell this story, people will sit there you know, business people when I'm doing training, shaking their head. Oh, my goodness. And to think it was still happening is unbelievable. That's really a great thing you did, Eric. Thank you. We're really proud about it. 
And the, the funny thing, it happened by accident, but I believe we just reached the, I think it's the 89th anniversary of Buckley v. Bell, the decision which allowed forced sterilization to happen. The governor signed it on the anniversary of that. So we think it's really, really important, and we're hopeful. Oh, is that great. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, that, yeah, that is, well, I say good for you, what you did. Um, And, you know, Eric, how can people follow you with all these great things you're involved with and doing? How, How can they follow you? I mean, the best place is probably on Twitter. That's where I'm the most active and engaged. Uh, my Twitter handle is at E-R-I-K-J-I-M-E-N-E-Z-N-V, like Nevada. Um, and that you can find me on Twitter, or you can just search my name, Eric Jimenez, and I'm usually pretty searchable on the Internet. But we're always looking for advocates in the fight um, and people nationally and internationally to help spread the word about this stuff. So any help we can get is really appreciated. Yeah, and and listen, I can assure you, I'm going to make sure that is told. I'm on the uh, board. I'm the vice chair of the American Association of People with Disabilities with Ted Kennedy Jr., the chair. And I, we are always looking for young people to be people with disabilities to be advocates. So you, you can you can be sure I'll be telling that story, uh, Eric to people to get involved supporting what you're doing. And one of the things I wanted to talk about, as you know, this is near and dear to my heart because this is, you know, I live with epilepsy. I'm a person with a disability. And I started Bender Consulting Services in 1995 to find employment for people with disabilities. So I'm like a search firm. You know, I work with major corporations and I work with them, refer them people with disabilities in competitive employment so that they too will have freedom like everyone else. And, you know, I can't get this out of my mind. The story you were telling goes back to what I talk about, that stigma. Imagine if they thought that current in Nevada, it's that stigma is horrific toward people with disabilities. But back then when I started, 90% of people were not counted in the workforce. Now today, 70%. It's so very sad that that is all the needle has moved. But I wanted to ask you your opinion. Why do you think that is? And what do you think we could do to help increase the employment of Americans with disabilities? Well, I think the why is interesting, right, because you've mentioned the stigma. I think we've created institutionalized barriers that, while we're well-intentioned, I think everyone that you would talk to in the street would say that they do support increasing opportunities for people with disabilities, but our structures, whether it be through Medicaid in our healthcare system or um, the way that we do job interviews or government employment and things like that, they're, they're designed not to help a person with a disability get through. So I think there's a couple things. One, I think we need to talk about issues related to employment and fairness. I think that helps raise awareness, particularly with our presidential candidates that are making the loop around. We're an early caucus state here in Nevada, so we get to meet a bunch of them. Uh, but one, I think if we have that conversation about subminimum wage and the need to eliminate it, that will naturally feed into a conversation of how employers can step up and how local governments can step up 
and start making sure that their work fi- workforce is diverse and actually looks diverse. Two, I think state and local governments can play a key role here in setting um, state hiring initiatives. So we will make a certain percentage of our workforce, um, you know, or reach out, try to make 5% of our workforce or 10% of our workforce um, someone with a disability, and then help integrate them into communities um, so that everyone, you know, I think it benefits everyone, not only the person with a disability, but the people on the other side of the trade when we have to interact with each other on a regular basis. And then finally, I think we can do a lot of work in our education system to make sure that these folks are ready when they leave high school um, for whatever they want to do. Maybe that's busing tables. Maybe that's being a greeter at a grocery store or, or something. Or maybe it's being a computer program. Who knows? Um, but making sure that these kids in high school have the tools that they need to succeed in the workforce. So I think that starts with setting up an ABLE account um, so when they get out, they don't have any threat to losing their Medicaid or Social Security. And then working with government agencies and businesses to set up internship programs because you know and I know, Joyce, that as soon as someone with a disability starts in a workplace, they're genuinely loved by the people around them and they want to work and they want to work hard and they're just happy to be there. So if we can increase opportunities for them to start those opportunities earlier, I think we're going to be really, really successful in making sure that all people with disabilities are in a competitive, integrated setting. I agree so much. And I'll tell you, though, we have a ways to go because maybe it's because of how long I've been doing this or possibly it's because of my access to CEOs. But recently, two different companies, I was told uh, through the, a friend of mine uh, who is an EVP both places, that when Human Resources went to some senior people about working with me to hire people with disabilities, that they said, um, I feel apprehensive. I've never worked with people with disabilities before. Uh, the other company said, what would I do with them? See, this is what I mean. People think that discrimination isn't there, but it is there. Maybe not with human resources, not with the CEO, but they aren't the ones that hire people. It's the mid-level management that hire people. And um, I, I launched a software product a couple years ago. It's called iDisability that is a e-learning product that goes on the LMS system and it's 35 modules, 15 minutes each, teaching companies how to communicate and work with people with disabilities, covering autism, uh, epilepsy, meetings, interviewing, etc. But you know my major reason for doing that was because of the stigma and the ignorance that I know exist, and if we could just break that down, then I believe we could get employment for people. What do you think about that? No, I think you're absolutely right. But I think it's important to watch the language that we use when we talk about this stuff, because oftentimes when, when a person with a disability or women or anybody you know, is angry about the situation, sometimes the language in which they use kind of thwarts their cause. So I, I think it's important to, like, grow with 
communities and meet people where they are. So when we talk to, you know, a business owner or a government official, like understanding that, yes, we have a problem, but like we all want to see the same goal together. How can we chip away at it, even though it's frustrating at times, and just start to reduce those institutional barriers? Because if we don't do anything, this population that's two times more likely to be unemployed and two times as likely as a regular person to be um, in poverty, they're not going to get out of that system. And that drains our social services and everything like that um, further and further for people who need it. So I think we need to start having these conversations with every community leader that we can, from pastors to union leaders to government officials, and just start chipping away at it. And I think some onus has to be on the business. I mean, I don't think we need to force businesses to do anything, but you know, to the extent that their workforce is not diverse, we need to help show them how we can make it diverse. Well, I agree with you. And I just want to tell you, when I speak to companies, I tell them, and anyone listening to the show, uh, this is what I believe, it isn't, absolutely isn't charity. When I work with a company, I'll tell them, no pity. You know, paychecks, not pity. No pity. It's a business solution. It's a return on investment. It's a diverse workforce that isn't being looked at. And when we talk to the corporate America, you know we have to stress that return on investment. That's so important because people are not going to hire people just to hire them. And if they would do that, it really would not work out. We wouldn't get anywhere. Uh, And I have certain companies like Highmark that are phenomenal, that are hiring so many people with disabilities in competitive areas. But I also agree with you that we have to start talking more in the community uh, so we can partner more with companies and with the state uh, and federal government. One of my large contracts is with the National Security Agency, which I'm so proud of. We've worked with them for 10 years now. And I always say if they can hire people, anyone can because the uh, you know, there's such strong stipulations. You know what I mean? So, um, so I agree with everything you're saying, Eric. So, Eric, I know we're soon getting to the end of the show, but there's one question I must ask you. I see how dynamic you are and, you know, how well-spoken you are. You had to have a role model. Who would that be? Ooh. I think, if, I always hate this question because I have difficulty choosing, but I'm going to be a little cliche and say probably my mom um, because it's not easy to raise a kid with a disability, right, with complex health care needs and, and astronomical costs when we talk about insurance premiums and prescription drugs and all of those things. And I think... Every American or any, anybody internationally that has to raise a child with a disability, like you need to be applauded and thanked because you're putting in a time that nobody else wants to put in. And I think, you know, we can learn a lot, about from, a lot from parents who, who put that time in and put their own lives to the side to help their kids. So that's what I'd have to say to that question, and I thank my mom every single day for giving me these opportunities. Oh, make sure she hears this show. And by the way, anyone listening, remember, 
if you think, oh, I'd love for, you know, this friend or family member to hear this show, you can get this podcast on Apple or Spotify, and please spread the news so more and more people can hear the show. And it has certainly been a pleasure to have you on the show with us today. Do you have uh, a message you would like to leave for people with disabilities? I think I would just leave on this. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do something. And we need more people to get involved. Um, particularly those with disabilities who have the capacity to get involved. So that means registering to vote. That means calling your congressman. That means, you know, I know your friend Madonna is very good at that and making sure that they know who she is. And I think also we need to mobilize and engage and encourage more people with disabilities to run for office. And if we can do that, I think we can solve a lot of the problems that we talked about today. Oh, yes. And the one thing you said that's so important is register to vote. You know, you have a chance to make a difference, but you have to be really registered to vote early and get everyone else registered because that is your way of making a difference. I want to also mention to everyone, don't miss the show next week with Larry Kleinman, who is Executive Vice President and the Chief Human Capital Officer for Highmark. Really, really great person talking about their commitment to employing people with disabilities. And if that, we end every show with a quote. And today, that quote is, when Gandhi said, speak only if it improves upon the silence said Gandhi. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. See you next week with Larry Kleinman. Voice America would like to thank you for tuning in. Please join us next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time for another installment of Disability Matters right here on the Internet Leader and Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com.